This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Stalking is a funny thing. Obviously, being stalked is terrifying, and it can be dangerous or even lethal. At the same time, though, there's something socially awkward about stalking that puts it in a strange position as a crime, because it's one that, as you're doing it, you may not even know you're committing. This doesn't just create problems in determining whether stalking crimes are taking place. It also creates serious problems with repeat offending. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about stalking, why it happens, and what can be done about it. My guest on the show is psychologist and Fordham University professor Barry Rosenfeld. We've spoken to Rosenfeld in the past about his work evaluating the mental health of U.S. detainees in Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, but he's also working on figuring out how effective a new therapeutic approach is in treating stalkers so they don't reoffend. Rosenfeld joins me this morning in our studio. Barry Rosenfeld, thanks for coming back to talk to me again. You're welcome. Now, we're talking today about stalking. Stalking is something that we throw around a lot as sort of a casual concept. Oh, he's stalking me. But real stalking, how common is it? Uh, Good question. It's actually hard to know what real stalking is. There's a lot of surveys out there that people have done, people like me, people in academia. Those published studies are all over the map. So you see anywhere from one in eight women, there was a national representative sample done by the uh, National Institute of Justice that found one in eight women would be stalked in their lifetime and about a, a million three people per year are stalked. But those are pretty broad definitions. Those basically rely on a handful of encounters or contacts from someone and usually some requirement, you know, in order for us to define stalking legally, we have some requirement that you also need to be at least a little bit afraid or, or harassed, that it's got to cause some kind of repercussion. If I just send you flowers four times in the, in the next four months, I'm not stalking you. I'm just sending you flowers. On the other hand, if I send you, you know, dead bunny rabbits, that might induce a little bit more fear, and those same four incidents might qualify as stalking. So there's a lot of subjectivity into what's stalking, but... If you look at surveys of college campuses, they say 25% of students report having been stalked. Again, really broad definitions go into some of those statistics. So what is stalking? So what is stalking? Stalking is, is is, is a repetitive behavior, right? So the key is it has to be a behavior that can occur, that, that occurs with some kind of frequency. And people vary in terms of how, what the minimum is. In my research, we usually say a minimum of three contacts. Some people are more conservative. They say a minimum of 10 contacts. But it's some kind of repetitive behavior that's harassing, that's frightening, that's intimidating, that's upsetting, and that continues when the person has said stop. And, and that's kind of a key because a lot of people just sort of shrug it off. They think they'll ignore it. And until you actually say, hey, stop sending me flowers. I don't like it. You freak me out a little bit. It's really hard to say you're being stalked. You just have a, a suitor. So there's really got to be that element of, of both sides uh, having a role. The, the, the victim, the, the person who's being stalked, has to really step up and say, hey, stop it, in other words, in order for us to call it stalking. Does there have to be an element of physical contact? Can you stalk somebody via text message, for example? Absolutely, yeah. It's a big buzz uh, phrase in both the law and in, and in criminal justice research. Everybody loves to talk about cyber stalking. 
But yeah, it certainly happens that people will engage in harassment. They'll send anonymous messages. Uh, they'll send messages claiming to be somebody who they're not. They may send messages admitting who they are. But no, there absolutely doesn't have to be any physical contact. And it's not unreasonable for people to become very frightened from those messages, depending on what the content is. Um, you know, I've certainly seen people get repeated messages saying, I know where you live. I know uh, I know how to find you. Uh, you know, something will happen. And, and that's extremely frightening. So if I come to you and I say that somebody has been stalking me, or if I come to whoever and say that, what am I likely to be talking about sort of typically? By the time someone gets to me, they're usually in one of two categories. Usually they're truly being seriously harassed by someone and it's gone on so long that they've now gone beyond just telling their friends, just telling the people that they know. They've now started to look for somebody who might have some expertise. Um, there's also, though, and this is I find this fascinating, there's also a category of people out there, and it's not a small percentage, who aren't actually being stalked. They're just severely mentally ill and they think they're being stalked. So they contact you, they contact me, I guess, more likely, and they say things like, you know, the, the premier uh, of, uh, you know, of the Ukraine has been sending me harassing text messages, and I think he's interested in, in pursuing a relationship with me, and, you know, completely fictitious, completely fabricated in their own head. That actually really complicates when we do research and clinical work, because you have to actually, there, it's a whole phenomenon we call false victimization. And those are people who often go seek professional help. But by and large, if we're talking about real stalking, people who are genuinely being stalked, usually people put up with it for a very, very long time. I mean, really to the point where you say, why didn't you come in eight months ago or three years ago or 12 years ago? How could you possibly have tolerated this for so long? Um, usually those are not cases where there's a tremendous fear of violence. Usually they haven't been saying, I'm going to I'm going to hurt you or kill you. That usually gets people to get police involved or, or someone involved sooner. But the kind of the nuisance behavior can go on for a very long time. So that's what I'm experiencing if I am being stalked. If I am the person who is stalking someone, what seems in my mind to be going on? Again, there are a lot of scenarios that lead to stalking. And so this is what makes, I think, part of our clinical task so much more difficult is to really try to figure out what's the motive here. So there's certainly a group of people who are, again, severely mentally ill, and they don't actually get that they're stalking. They actually believe that they're involved in a relationship with Madonna, with David Letterman, with Uma Thurman, whoever it is. It's called a delusion. It's a symptom of a severe mental illness. And it's when the person truly and genuinely believes kind of with all their heart and soul something that is just factually not true. And a cluster of those delusional disorders take the form of what's called a rhodomania, which is believing you have a relationship with someone or more accurately that someone loves you even though there's really no evidence to, to sustain that. I, I saw someone a while ago who had 20-year history of basically harassing this man that she had a very brief fleeting relationship with, was adamant that he wanted her and that, and that you know he wouldn't take no for an answer. But all of the emails were from her to him. Everything from him was, please stop emailing me. My wife and I really don't appreciate it. You know, it was really sort of a, almost a fatal attraction, but, but on a less physically threatening level. So that's a category, the erotomanic psychotics. There's a fairly large cadre of people who just have, 
you know, what I would call colloquially relationship problems. And and this is who we target in the intervention that I've been developing and, and, and working on. These are people who had sort of tumultuous relationships. And, and what often complicates this is the relationship might have had some violence in it, and sometimes that can go both ways, was sort of an on-again, off-again. So it sometimes is hard for that person to even know, is the relationship over or do I just keep pushing a little harder? But there's certainly a category of people who take the approach, even though they might not say it, of... No, you don't get to tell me when the relationship is over. I get to tell you when the relationship is over. They just won't take that no for an answer. And so they will continue to in, in sort of inflict the relationship. So those are probably the most common scenarios. But, you know, there's other people, you know, maybe people who are a little bit more intellectually limited, limited, who just don't realize that this is not, in fact, a mutual relationship. They misinterpret the signals, but not due to psychosis. Uh, maybe the signals are, in fact, misleading, or maybe they're just not quite getting it, uh, that this person's just being nice to them, that they don't actually intend to be starting a relationship with them. So there's a lot of pathways. On WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, you are listening to Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're talking about stalking. My guest is clinical and forensic psychologist Barry Rosenfeld. Rosenfeld is a professor of psychology at Fordham, and prior to that, he worked at New York City's Forensic Psychiatric Clinic at Bellevue. Rosenfeld is working now on a research study exploring therapies for people convicted of stalking crimes. Let's get back to that conversation. I have read um, that only about a third of stalking cases are actually reported to the police. Is that true, and why might it be? Um, Is that true? Well, okay, so let's go back to that question of, of how do you define stalking. Depending on how you define stalking, some of those cases are really trivial. They're inconsequential. They're the, you know, the guy down the hall who's sent you flowers three times and you say, oh, he's stalking me. It's not really what we think of as stalking. Most of what we think of as as genuine stalking gets reported to the police relatively often. But, you know, there are a lot of people who just don't think anything will be done about it. So, for example, if you had a bad relationship with your partner, if it was sort of on again, off again, maybe some violence, maybe you called the police a couple times, but nothing ever happened, you might not have much confidence that the police are going to do anything. And frankly, in those cases, the police don't often take a very active role. So so there's certainly groups of individuals who will report it very quickly, maybe even the first time. But, you know, again, it, how long does it take before you realize that, uh, you know, this person's not getting the hint? And so it often takes people a long time to even say something directly, like, please stop contacting me. You know, you're bothering me. You're freaking me out a little bit. And then, of course, a fair number of those people do stop. So it's not as if everybody who starts stalking continues on indefinitely. In fact, most people stop. Now, some people might go on for years. Some people go on for decades. But but truly, the vast majority will kind of get sick of this at some point. So one reason that a lot of cases might not get reported is because it stopped before they got around to it. It didn't go that far. In fact, contacting the police is often one of the last interventions because that often will stop people as well. That's when they know that you don't want to be their girlfriend or, or boyfriend. So where is that line between social awkwardness and stalking? 
You know, that's that's a very subjective one. And I think everybody gets to define that for themselves. You know, you might think anyone who approaches you, you know, is is missing out on the obvious signal that your wedding ring should connote and they shouldn't ever approach you. Other people will let it go for a very long time. My my guideline to folks is just be clear. If you really aren't sure or maybe you are thinking that you're interested in this person, then okay, let it go. If you really don't like this person, you don't want them contacting you, tell them that in no uncertain terms. Not you don't have to be mean about it. You can just be very clear like, "Hey, I'm not interested. I appreciate the flowers. Please don't send me any more. I'm really not interested in a relationship of any kind with you." I think that's a pretty clear message. And frankly, for the law to be even invoked, you have to give that sort of a message. You have to basically have said, "Stop this behavior." before you can say the person won't stop even after they've been told to. So, so you know, I think, again, we use the term colloquially. We say all the time, we say things like, oh, he's such a stalker. And what does that mean? That means somebody who's persistent. That doesn't necessarily mean it's what we think of clinically as stalking. One of the big things that people do worry about with stalkers, and I think probably a big part of the reason that stalking has become something that we are sort of preoccupied with, is the possibility of violence. Um, how likely is violence in that kind of situation? And how do you know if your cyber stalker or your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend is just being annoyingly persistent or if there's a chance they might hurt you? Yeah, that's a great question. That's probably the biggest question that gets asked. So when people contact me, yeah, they'd like to know what do I do to get them to stop. They really want to know, do I have to move to another state and change my name and change my phone number? And obviously, you don't want to do that unless you really are in very, very serious danger. So I've done a couple of studies looking at this. Other people have done a couple of studies looking at this. There's about a dozen or so studies of varying degrees of sophistication, and they point to a handful of different risk factors. And and interestingly, they're not necessarily the ones you would think of. So, for example, the person who's really floridly psychotic and thinks they're in a relationship with you because you're a celebrity and they've heard you on the radio and, you know, they know that conveys a message of some kind, that person's usually one of the lowest risk because they're interested in a relationship you they, with you. They don't want to hurt you. There's a small possibility that they could become angry and, and uh, vengeful against somebody who they see as being in their way, like your partner or your whatever, roommate. But those tend to be the least likely to be violent. You know, when we look at the risk factors, one of the biggest ones is the existence of a genuine previous relationship. So if I had a relationship with you, the relationship broke up, and now I'm stalking you. That's a very substantial risk factor. It's one of the most robust risk factors for violence. Now, that's not necessarily lethal violence. In fact, there's actually really no good research on lethal violence because it's so rare. I mean, it it certainly happens. It makes the headlines when it does happen. If you were to think about that as a proportion of all stalking cases, it's such a microscopic proportion that we can't even study it. Um, I did a study with 200 individuals convicted of stalking crimes. I think we found 12 that had committed serious or potentially life-threatening violence. Now, that doesn't mean it's only 6%. I mean, it, and in fact, that wasn't even close to homicide. But it's certainly a very low likelihood event. There's a very high likelihood, a substantially higher likelihood, maybe about a third in the, the research that's out there, of people who commit more sort of general assault, a push, a punch, some kind of physical contact that is potentially or, or actually harmful. But again, not anything approaching life-threatening. And and keep in mind, when I say a third, that's in the published research. So most of those are studies that looked at um, one of two things, either people who had been arrested for stalking offenses, 
right? So the truly nuisance offenders aren't in there. And actually, the, the homicidal people aren't usually in there either because they usually go right to prison. They don't get sent for a psych evaluation. Uh, or their studies of victims. Again, you don't get the homicide uh, victims because they can't fill out surveys. Um, but again, these are people who are choosing to fill out an online survey. So they're not necessarily representative. So when I say a third, that's the number you get in the published research. It's, it's not necessarily a very robust number. The vast majority are, are of those, though, are, are really sort of minor incidents of, of aggression. So, so I mentioned the prior relationship. Another one is, is kind of obvious. Has the person made any explicit threats? People who threaten are more likely to act. And, and again, that's, you, you can't go to the bank with that. There certainly are people who act first without ever giving any warning. There's certainly people who threaten, and it's all bluster. They're not really going to act. But if you look at an association, it's a risk factor. So if someone's threatened, if they have a prior history of, of with you, those are two of the biggest risk factors. People who have an antisocial personality style, these are just sort of more generally likely to be impulsive or aggressive folks. Again, not surprising that that's a small risk factor for violence. Substance abuse is a risk factor for violence, as it is in any other context because, you know, people get impulsive and stupid when they use drugs and alcohol. Uh, those are some of the most robust risk factors. None of those do a particularly good job of, of, quote, explaining violence. So it's not as if someone can walk in and I can say, oh, you're fine. You know, I can say, well, you know, more risk factors, fewer risk factors, you know, and, and, and of course, some of the big risk factors are things we never really have access to. We don't always know what the person's motive is. Are they angry with you? Or are they trying to renew a relationship or have a relationship with you? Do they own any guns? You know, people who own guns, that's a bad sign if you think you're at risk of harm. People who don't own guns, you know, they can find a knife, but they're, they're a little less likely to, to kill someone. So, again, just some of the broad strokes risk factors. And it seems like if you're making statistical predictions... There's a couple things there that might throw it off, which is, you know, if you have a prior relationship with someone, you may be less likely to report that they seem to have gone off the rails because you don't want to you don't want to bring the state down on them unless you're really, really sure that they might do something bad. Or, or that you think the state will intervene in a way that's meaningful. And, you know, that's a big area that throws people with regard to stalking, which is that, you know, there's one of the one of the recourses that that people have who are being victimized like this can go to the court and can get what's called an order of protection. And and there's a little bit of mythology around orders of protection. Some people say, don't get an order of protection. That's going to really tick the person off. It's not going to do any good. It's going to make them more angry. It'll just make the situation worse. That doesn't actually seem to be the case. On the other hand, orders of protection do allow the police to intervene much more quickly. So while you have to meet a threshold in order to get the judge to issue an order of protection, if you have an order of protection and the person approaches you or contacts you, they've committed a crime. Even if they're just standing outside your building, if they're within a certain radius that the order specifies, that can constitute a, a it's called contempt of court. And they can get, a, I think, up to a year in prison, depending on the nature of, uh, of the order and, and their history. You know, the extent to which the court and the DA and the police are, are cooperative is also probably going to differ, you know, depending on all sorts of things that we can't know. Unfortunately, there's a lot of variation in how, how people get responded to when they do choose to report this. Not to imply that this would be predictive, but in sort of the world of, of stalkers, I guess, who are they demographically and psychologically and who are their victims? 
there really isn't a profile. You know, look at the headlines. Look at the, over over history. You know, of of course, in general, people who break the law tend to be of lower socioeconomic status. They have less education. They have poorer jobs. They have a history of substance abuse. But you know, in some sense, when you look at the stalking literature, they're older. They're more often Caucasian, more often than the general criminal offender. I should say. You know, we had a, a, a the highest judge in New York State engaging in stalking behavior a, a few years ago. In other words, it can really be almost anybody that can engage in this and almost anybody that can be the victim of it. But if you look at numbers, the vast majority or certainly the, a substantial majority are kind of the everyday people who had a bad relationship and that relationship went south and one partner didn't want to take no for an answer. That's the largest group. They represent over half, it seems, more like two-thirds of all stalking cases. Again, that's not a demographic group because that can be people with good jobs just as easily as people with poor jobs or no jobs. It's whites, it's blacks, it's Hispanics. It's kind of the equal opportunity crime in some ways. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning at Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Barry Rosenfeld. Taking this in a slightly more positive direction, you are working on ways to treat stalkers so that they don't stalk again or so that they don't do violence to their victims. Tell me about the work that you have been doing and its successes. Sure. Um, successes. Well, there's successes, there's challenges. Yes, we've been working on this. And I say we, my, my two primary collaborators are Michelle Gallietta, who's the director of clinical psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and, in fact, a Fordham uh, graduate, and Andre Ivanov, who's in the Columbia University School of Social Work. And they're both experts in the use of an intervention called dialectical behavior therapy, which is a very intensive behaviorally oriented treatment. Um, cognitive and behavioral, and it's an integrative. It incorporates things like mindfulness training. It's a very broad-based, intensive intervention that's been used with successfully with people with very severe personality disorders and other sorts of behavioral problems. They're both experts in applying that to offender populations more broadly, and, and I sort of brought them in to tackle, to help tackle this problem of uh, the, the fact that there really were not any interventions for stalking offenders. And if anything, it was probably harder to treat that group than most, because if you send them to a clinic, you, know, you got a good chance that the doctor's going to say, oh, I don't want to treat this guy. He's going to start stalking me. And of course, that does happen. There are a number of mental health professionals who have been stalked by former patients. So we've been doing this study for a while. We've we've had a lot of challenges for a, a, an offender population that's really characterized by persistence. I always joke that I'm the one person they don't really want to bother to see. So we have a hard time keeping them coming. And that's true, of, of course, with all sites, sorts of offender treatment. We think clinically that it's very effective. We think that this approach has a tremendous amount of promise because it really doesn't doesn't require the person in some ways to kind of come to the conclusion that what they did was wrong so much as what they did created problems for them. So we really work on trying to shape behavior and get people to change the way they react to situations and, and identify what leads them to react in this way, come up with alternative strategies, and then implement those alternative strategies. And so it's, it's in that way, it's a very kind of hands-on, concrete intervention. Tell me a little bit more about how this, this treatment would work just on the ground, nuts and bolts. 
So, so the program is basically a modification of, of dialectical behavior therapy, or what's called DBT. And DBT is, is what's called an integrative treatment. So it takes a bunch of different approaches, kind of shuffles them together in a very structured and systematic way, and uses them to target behavior. So a big part of it is identifying the triggers of behavior. We do a lot of what's called behavioral analysis or behavioral chain analysis, where, where we basically try to figure out what problem occurred, what led to that problem? What were the precipitants? So we want to figure out kind of where that path started so that we can find an alternative route. That's a big part of what's done in the individual sessions. We, we have targeted behaviors that we think are important. So maybe that's, you know, your occasional marijuana use. Maybe that's your loneliness that leads you to call this person you're not supposed to call because you feel bad, whatever it is. We try to target their individual needs and, and we in fact, have a sort of a, a, a hierarchy of needs of what we think the biggest issues are. And, and we kind of go in descending order of, of what, what do we need to spend the most time on? What's going to be the most important to keeping you safe and people around you safe and you out of trouble? So that's, that's a big part of what the individual sessions focus on. Um, the group sessions really run through a structured curriculum, and there are four different elements of the group. Mindfulness is a big element, so, so really getting people really getting to sort of people to sort of take stock of who they are and what they're doing, to think a little bit before they act. Another module is distress tolerance. So again, a big problem with certainly the folks in our, in our group, people who have more personality-driven offenses, is that they feel bad, and to feel better, they do something. Usually what they choose to do is not adaptive. So one of the things that, that we try to focus on is that it's you know, not the end of the world to actually feel bad. And you don't have to do something. to. So we try to get people to recognize what distress is on a somewhat deeper level. Again, there's a lot of exercises that we use. This is a very concrete, you know, this is not just us talking about it in, a, in an abstract way, but using very concrete exercises. Um, so a third arm of the group is emotion regulation. We, again, are trying to help people modulate their moods a little bit so they don't have these really intense highs or lows. We really want to try to help people stay a little bit more regulated because they just get a little bit kind of verklempt, as the Yiddish uh, grandmother might say. And, and, and again, that drives a lot of the acting out behavior. So, so those are, and interpersonal effectiveness is another. We're just trying to, you know, how do you negotiate relationships a little bit more effectively and appropriately. So there, there are, these are kind of core elements of what we focus on. We add a little bit on problem solving to help people sort of think through some of their strategies and, and how they operate. But these, again, are kind of exercise-driven group interventions where we've got five or six people and two group leaders kind of walking through the idea and the, and, and the exercises to help people basically develop different ways of acting and reacting. And, and that's really what a behavioral intervention is all about, is getting you to act and react differently. One more question, and then I will let you go. Is stalking actually more common than it used to be, or does it just seem like it is? I think it just seems like it is. It's certainly one of these areas where consciousness has been raised, and therefore everybody's attuned to it. It's now just a, it's part of the everyday vernacular. Everybody talks about stalking. There are reports of stalking back centuries. Uh, I think it's Louisa May Alcott wrote a, a, a manuscript that was never published about sort of a, a, a long, fatal stalking encounter. I've actually not read it, but I've 
know it's out there. So this has been around forever. I mean, you can look back to mythology and find things that sound like stalking. On the other hand, a lot of people speculate that as sort of society becomes a little bit more cut off, that people's attachments to one another become a little bit more disrupted and that it's this disrupted attachments that are that are really at the root of stalking. That's a theory. It's a plausible theory. Uh, there's even a couple of things that I think might support it. I mean, I think it certainly makes sense to think of stalking as a problem with attachments. Whether society's attachments are truly deteriorating, I think, is a, is a pretty much an open question still. And, and I guess I'm a little more optimistic that I think society's always been a little messed up and people have always been engaging in bad behavior. We just haven't targeted it for most of most of our lifetimes. It seems like there's a lot more sort of stalking-friendly technology available now, too, than there used to be. Certainly the Internet ups the ante. I mean, you can you have a whole way of harassing people that didn't exist. But, you know, the truth is, what has that replaced? It's replaced the U.S. mail. I mean, for centuries, uh, or, or certainly for, for many, many years, people would get a letter a day from their stalker, or two or three letters a day. So now it's an email. It's a little quicker. It's a little more regular. It's a little more immediate. People stalk through instant messaging even. So, yes, it's true. And, yes, it's harder to hide. Uh, You know, people can find your home address a little more quickly, although, you know, fortunately that doesn't happen very often. I think, you know, most most stalking doesn't go on that way. Most stalking is, I think, still the old-fashioned way. You know, you're in the office, and I'm coming by the office with flowers. Well, Barry Rosenfeld, thanks for talking with me today about stalking. Anytime. Barry Rosenfeld is a professor and the director of clinical training at Fordham's psychology department. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. You can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives, both at wfuv.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.